complete authority. That we would know Jesus' true identity in our minds and that with our hearts we would trust in His complete authority. Mark talks a lot about the authority of Jesus and we're going to see it again this morning. I want us to trust as a body Jesus' complete authority. And then the third thing is more a thing that we do. So something in our mind, something in our heart, and something with our hands and feet and our mouths. And that is this, that we would know His identity, trust in His complete authority, and follow Him immediately. Mark is the gospel of discipleship. And he uses the word immediately 42 times, and in the rest of the New Testament it's only used 12 times. He likes to make things happen, and his desire is that God's people would see Jesus for who He is, know what Jesus has done, and respond by following Him immediately. That's what I want to see happen in our body as we go through the Gospel of Mark. So that's what I forgot from last week, and a lot of you were gone because of weather or other reasons. And so, um, just a quick review. If you open up your Bible, Mark chapter 1, we went through verses 1 through 8 last week. And in Mark chapter 1, 1 through 8, Mark, we said, just gives us an introduction right off the bat. He makes it very clear to us what this book is about in verse 1. We don't have to wait till we get later into the book to find out what this is about. He says this book is the beginning of the gospel, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Makes it very clear. That's what this book is about. It's about Jesus. Who He is. And He is the Christ, and He is the Son of God, and this is good news. Okay? So we talked about that last week, and then we talked about the fact that in verses 2 and 3 especially, it's interesting that God is sending this messenger to prepare the way for Jesus, but he actually introduces the messenger by introducing him through the prophecy of the Old Testament about the messenger. So, Old Testament prophesied about the one, little o, okay, little o, prophesied about the one, little o, who was going to prepare the way for the one, capital O, who was to come, right? So John just came to prepare the way for Jesus. And the way that he did that, we learned in verses 4 and 5, was that John didn't do that by telling people, hey, Messiah's coming and he's got a wonderful plan for your life. Or, the Messiah's coming, get your church clothes on and look really pretty and pretend you got it all together even though you don't. No, his message was, prepare for the Messiah to come by confessing your sins and repenting of your sins by dealing with your sin. And the challenge to us as a body was, we need to deal with our sin. We might think it's just like I, like I mentioned, the sewage issue that we were having in our house, it, like it's just the sewage in the basement, and it's not going to affect most of life on the main floor, but eventually it does. It smells. I cleaned it up yesterday, finally. Like we wanted to be sure it wasn't coming back. So I went down there and bleached uh, in the basement yesterday. House smells like a swimming pool now. Um, it affects all of life, right? All right. And then in verses 6 through 8, we found that John has a good understanding of who he is in relationship to Jesus. And that he knows what he's coming to do. John is taking people, he's preaching to them, and he's baptizing them in a river, asking them to confess their sins. But he says, that's pretty external. What Jesus is coming to do, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He will do something deep and internal in you. So that's how we introduced the book last week. And now we move on. We're going to look today through verses 9 through 13. And just as a way to introduce that, well actually let's read it. Let's, uh, let's stand together, if you're able to stand, let's stand and read Mark chapter 1, 
verses 9 through 13. This is the Word of God. Listen. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's remain standing as we pray. God, I want us to do that this morning, that we would truly be in awe of Jesus in His authority and that we would trust Him and that we would follow Him. The things that I want to see accomplished through Your Word and the things that I think You want to accomplish through Your Word this morning are not accomplished um, naturally. They need to happen supernaturally. And so God, we are dependent on You to come and do what You want to do in us in our hearts, not in the hearts just of our neighbors, but in the hearts of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. You know, I was, uh, before I was going to be a pastor, I was going to be a teacher. And one of the things they taught me as I was going to be a teacher, and I remember this, thinking through this as I went to be a student teacher. Now, I was student teaching at the age of 21 uh, in a high school with juniors and seniors that were not much younger than I was. And you can tell, like right now I'm 32 and I still look like I'm 20. Um, and so when I was 21, I looked even younger. And so you can imagine that I came in there a little bit intimidated to this high school class. But I remembered one of the things that they taught me early on in my education about how to do education was that you need to establish your authority immediately. Like you don't mess around at the beginning of the school year Allowing people to think you're their best friend. You don't want to be their friend. You want to be the, the teacher that lets them know that I'm the teacher and you're the student right away. Because if you let them walk over you at the beginning, it's just going to keep happening all year. That's what they told me. And so I walk into the classroom thinking, I'm going to do this. And then I look at these people and I'm like, man, I don't know. Most of them are bigger than me. Half of the girls could probably beat me in arm wrestling. Like, I, I'm not going to establish my authority by a great show of physical strength, right? Or, or by my mature looks. That's not how I'm going to do it. So how do I go into a classroom and establish my authority? That was what I had to figure out. And now here at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark, who wishes to establish, because God wishes to establish the authority of Jesus, he already did it in verse 1, right? He said, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. If that's not enough to say this man is an authority, and then he actually has somebody come and prepare the way for him. But now we get to really see the authority of Jesus as Jesus finally comes on the scene himself. In verses 1 through 8, Jesus hasn't come yet. But now starting in verse 9, Jesus shows up on the scene and we see the authority of Jesus established. That's what we're going to look at this morning. The authority of Jesus being established. Here's the first place it happens. In verses 9 through 11, we see the authority of Jesus established in the water. The authority of Jesus first is established in the water. It says in verse 9, In those days, 
Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. That's where He grew up. And He was baptized by John in the Jordan. A couple things to note. One, He came to the Jordan. I think it's interesting that He comes to the Jordan, that John is doing all His work in the Jordan. You, you might remember from the Old Testament that as God's people came to the Jordan and were seeking to cross into the promised land, right? God had made a promise to them and was about to fulfill it. And in order to get there, what did, what did God do? Remember? He parted the Jordan River so that they could cross into the promised land, correct? And now, here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the fulfillment of God's promise, the Messiah has come, the fulfillment of God's promise is here, and what does God do? He has Jesus enter the Jordan River. And interestingly, instead of the Jordan splitting, you'll find out in a couple of verses that heaven splits open. Okay? But the question a lot of people have is, why did Jesus get baptized? I mean, he didn't, he didn't need to get baptized. Why? And John even questioned that. And you read it about in another gospel when he comes and John says, well, why should I be baptizing you? When, when John saw him coming in, in the book of John chapter 1, we read that John looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an introduction. And then Jesus comes and says, Baptize me. John's wondering, Well, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy to get down and untie your sandals. Why, why should I come and baptize you? So why is it that Jesus gets baptized here? He doesn't have any sin to confess right? He's not, he's not coming to be cleansed in some way. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He is the eternal God who has never sinned and never will sin. Why is He being baptized? I want you to turn really quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's the last verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think we're going to find that Jesus came to be baptized in order to identify with sinners. That's why Jesus was baptized. In order to identify with sinners. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, He made Him, this is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, had existed in glory forever, eternally, and has now come in human flesh to identify with His people. And His people, us, were sinful. And so Jesus, to identify fully with us, enters into the waters of baptism, foreshadowing that He would one day identify Himself with us as sinners on the cross and bear the punishment, and that through that we would have our righteousness. That makes sense? So Jesus is coming into the water to be baptized to identify with sinners. Now look at verses 10 and 11. And he, this is in Mark again, sorry, Mark chapter 1, 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And listen, just, just picture what this would be like to be here, right? The, the Messiah has just come. And John has looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he gets in the water, and it says, as he comes up out of the water, he sees the heavens being torn open, and 
the Spirit descends on Him like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven saying, You are My beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. You see what we're seeing there? We're seeing the Trinity. We're seeing, not many times in Scripture do you get to see this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in one place. We saw that at creation. That's another beautiful spot in in Scripture where we see the whole Trinity. We see the Father creating through the Word, through the Son, and and the Spirit, it says in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit is hovering. Actually, Hebrew, literally the word is fluttering. Fluttering, and then the rabbis would later even add like a dove. Okay, so interesting that that's how the Holy Spirit's coming down here. Holy Spirit, during creation, is fluttering, hovering over creation, and the Father creates the world through the Word, through the Son. So we see the Trinity there, and now again, at this monumental occasion, in all of human history, we get to see the Trinity again. The Trinity is present. And and the Trinity is doing what the Trinity always does. Here, in Mark The focus is on Jesus. The Father is speaking to Jesus. The Spirit is descending into Jesus, right? But the Trinity has always been about glorifying one another. That's what they do. There's perfect love and unity and harmony within the Trinity, and the three persons of the Trinity are always giving glory to each other. If you just in John 17, 4 and 5, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Here's what it says. Jesus is speaking, he's praying to the Father, and he says. I glorified you on earth. Okay, so the Son glorifying the Father on earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, it's so hard to understand. I don't get it, right? The Trinity, I don't understand. But somehow, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all bringing honor and glory to one another, living in perfect Trinitarian love and unity since before time began. And we see it happening again here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we see the authority of Jesus being affirmed by the loving words of the Father and the descending power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is fully man and fully God, and I wonder if being fully man, Jesus just needed this at the start of knowing what he was coming to do knowing that his ministry was going to start knowing what it was going to entail that he needed to hear the affirming words of the father dads do you speak affirming words to your kids i still remember uh on one of the most monumental days in my life the day that i got married may 19th 2001 kirsten and i got married in a old-fashioned old church building, and I was down in the basement, and my dad took me into the other room just before my wedding. And he said to me, I don't even know what he said, because he was crying. And I couldn't understand his words, but it was some sort of words of affirmation to me as he said some words to me and then prayed for me. At this pivotal time in my life, I heard the affirming words of my Father knowing that He loved me. And that's what Jesus gets to experience at the beginning of His ministry. As He goes in to do what God, His Father, has called Him to do, His Father not only sends Him on this mission, but the Father also says to Him, You are my beloved Son. 
and with you I am well pleased. He hears that. And he, and he has the power of the Holy Spirit descend on him. Actually, probably better translation would be into him. That the Holy Spirit descends into him. They've already been in relationship for all of eternity, but now you've got this Holy Spirit descending into Jesus, empowering him for the ministry that God's called him to. And so, I love verses 9 through 11 because they show the authority of Jesus established in the water that Jesus is God. Part of the God in three persons. He is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God in human flesh, here and now. This is exciting. And then, it's time to start ministry. But interestingly, as I told you, my, my goal in starting ministry here is to focus on the four P's, right? People, patience, prayer, and preaching. Jesus doesn't get to focus on the four P's right away. Maybe prayer and maybe patience. But not people and not preaching right away. Look what happens. Look at verse 12. Now we're going to look at the, Jesus, the authority of Jesus being established in the wilderness. We've already seen it established in the water. Now look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. What? Why? Why the wilderness? Why now? He's been empowered for the ministry. He's only going to be on earth for three years. Why spend the first 40 days in the wilderness where there's no people even? Why? Well, it seems like an unexpected place to start ministry, doesn't it? Now you've been empowered for ministry. Now I want you to go into the wilderness for 40 days. Be alone. The wilderness, again, thinking back to the Old Testament, is a place of waiting and testing as we await God's promises, right? That's kind of happening here as well. But it's interesting that after the beauty of verses 9-11, through 11, where we see God in three persons, blessed Trinity, all in one place, and it's kind of like this great sending off, and then... Immediately from that great, beautiful mountaintop, Jesus is plunged into the dark wilderness. Some of you have been there in your life spiritually, where you have been, it seems like, in God's presence. You were at a camp or at a mission trip or some worship service, just a good time of life, right? And everything seemed to be going so well. And then Immediately, it says here, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to a dark, lonely, desolate, dangerous place. And some of you have been there before. Jesus is there now. Notice that the Spirit drove him there. It says the Spirit immediately drove him there. It's not that, um, it's not that Jesus just decided this was a good thing to do or this was Satan's idea. This was the Spirit's idea. And the Spirit didn't just nudge him. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness and so Jesus goes into the wilderness, and I want to look at what his company is. The, the stage is being set here for the cosmic battle that has been raging in the heavens for all of time to now take place on the earth, on the soil that God created. We're going to see this battle take place. The battle's always going on. All throughout human history, this battle between God and Satan has been going on, and very rarely do we get to see it play out so clearly on, humans, on, on earthly soil. But we will hear in just a moment 
I want you to look first, though, before we get to that, at who else Jesus was with, before we get to talking about Satan. Look at verse 13. It says, And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I find it interesting. Remember, Mark is the shortest gospel, and he's extremely succinct. He doesn't waste any words on anything. Why would it be that when Mark doesn't even say much at all, other, the other gospel writers, they devote like a, a half a chapter to this. Mark does two verses. That's it. Two verses. That's all he's got on Jesus being in the wilderness. But for some reason, in those two verses, he sees fit to say Jesus was with wild animals and angels were ministering to him. Now, what some people think, the reason that Jesus might have, or, or Paul, Mark might have said wild animals were with him, is that the people hearing Mark's gospel for the first time, remember last week, were probably suffering under the persecution of Nero, meeting in catacombs beneath the city of Rome. And one of the things that Nero did to persecute Christians was he would feed them to wild animals for entertainment. For the entertainment of his people, he would feed Christians to wild animals. You think Christians were scared of wild animals? Yeah. And so Mark is saying, making sure that that these Christians know, listen, this Jesus can identify with you. He identifies with you as a sinner as he entered the waters of baptism, and he's identifying with you because he knows what it's like to be around wild animals. And then it also says that angels were ministering to him. Do you see that? That's the last part of verse 13. And angels were ministering to Jesus. We need to clear up a couple of misconceptions about angels because people in our culture are weird about angels. Um, and angels are not weird. They are not um, childlike little archers um, that belong in toilet paper commercials. They are warriors of light who are engaged most of the time invisibly in this battle that has been going on, again, like I mentioned, since the beginning of time between God and Satan. And, and, and God and all of His angelic forces and Satan and all His demonic forces are waging war against one another. And so angels are not God. Angels are not to be worshipped. God is to be worshipped. God made the angels. They're spiritual beings created by God. Usually invisible, but can show up visibly. I don't know if Jesus saw them visibly here or not. But either way, the angels were being servants of God, ministering to Jesus in this time of extreme testing and temptation. Okay? So, he's with wild animals and with angels, but most significantly, who is Jesus with? Look at verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. This is one of those times where we get to see this cosmic battle come down to earth. Again, we've got to go back to Genesis again. I think Mark is doing this intentionally. But if you go back to Genesis, think of the garden, right? We have Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, now they're not alone. They're together and everything is perfect there. They are not with wild animals who will hurt them where Jesus is. There are some differences, but there's a lot of similarities. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and after the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2, just like after the beauty of verses 9 through 11 here, there is this evil that enters. The adversary. Satan means adversary. God's enemy enters the scene here. Happens in Genesis chapter 3. And there's a temptation that comes from the mouth of a serpent. 
And Adam fails. That's what happens in Genesis 3. And ever since then, we have come into the world in Adam. And we are also tempted by Satan. And we also fail in so many ways. We are in Adam. And just as this first Adam was put in a place of testing, so now Jesus, the second Adam, is put in a place of testing. And it seems kind of like a letdown after the beauty of verses 9 through 11. It's like, really? Satan's coming again? I mean, this sounded so good. For, for, for generations, people have been waiting for the Messiah to come. And now the Messiah is here. John has come to prepare the way. And the Father is speaking and the Holy Spirit's descending. And then Satan shows up. And you'll notice that Satan doesn't even have any new tricks. He's using the same ones that he'd been using for a long time. If you looked in Matthew chapter 4 in Matthew's account, the first temptation starts out with, if you are the Son of God. Now what did God the Father just say to Jesus? You are my beloved Son. You see what Satan does? He tries to get us to doubt what God says is true about himself and what God says is true about us. That's what Satan tries to do. That's his trick. He's got a lot of different tricks, but that's the one he likes to use most often to get us to doubt and question whether what God says is true about himself and about us is really true. Satan's temptation to Adam was, listen, don't listen to what God says about the tree. He's just holding out on you. Listen to what I say about the tree. Don't listen to what God says about the tree. Listen to what I say about the tree. Obey me about the tree, not God. But here, interestingly, I think this is very interesting. You notice how Mark doesn't even tell us how it ends? Look at verse 12 and 13. Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he was with wild animals, and angels were ministering to him. And then what, Mark? (laughs) Right? Like, did he win? Did, Did he fall for the temptation? Did he stand up to Satan? Did he... I mean, Matthew talks about the scripture that Jesus was using and all, like, Mark's got nothing. It's almost like Mark just assumes, well, yeah, you know Jesus wins, right? Like, I don't even have to tell you that. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the Christ. Of course he's going to win. Interesting, though, that Mark doesn't even point that out. I want you to look quickly, though, at Luke, because I want to know how it ends a little bit more than Mark gives us. If you look at Luke chapter 4, in Luke's account, look at Luke 4.13. And, it says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Catch that? So Satan finally gives up. He's like, okay, this ain't working. I'm leaving. And he departs from Jesus until an opportune time. Satan does give up. He can be defeated, but he thinks he's like, he's like that annoying little kid who just won't take no for an answer, right? Or won't take a loss. Like, he can't lose very well. Satan's not a very good loser. Like, oh, I lost here? He's like, I'm coming back. And he does. 
Kind of like he's saying, you know, this round is over. I got knocked out. I got some cuts that I got to get sutured up. I got to sniff the smelling salts. I'm going to go back to my corner for a little bit, but I'm going to come back out because I've not tapped out yet, Satan says. I'm still in this, right? He's coming back. Let that, let that be a warning for us Christians, right? If you think things are going pretty well right now, if you're kind of at a spot where spiritually you're very comfortable and everything's going really well, beware. Satan, it says in 1 Peter 5.8, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, and that does not sound nice. So it says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Be alert. If things are going really well, be alert. Our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and it might be you. So be alert. Some old guy named Thomas Brooks says this. He says, God had but one son without sin, but he has none without temptation. Such is Satan's enmity to the Father that the nearer and dearer any child is to him, the more Satan will trouble and vex him with temptations. None so well beloved as Christ, none so much tempted as he. You're in a position of leadership. People look up to you for spiritual leadership. Watch out. Satan is the adversary. He doesn't want God's work to be done. He will attack. Satan always wants us to question what God says. He did that to Adam, he did that to Jesus, and he does it to us. But here's what we need to remember. We need to remember who has authority. Jesus' authority was established in the water, and Jesus' authority was established in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, in Matthew's account of this, I love this, you can write it down and look at it later, or you can look at it now. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. I love this. Satan comes. While Jesus is in the wilderness. And listen to how Matthew talks about the ending. Then Jesus said to him, this is Jesus talking to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus has the authority to look Satan straight in the face and say, Be gone, Satan. And Satan, with his head, his chin up on his chest, and his tail between his legs, has to walk away. Because our Jesus has authority over Satan. Praise God for that. Huh? I thought maybe even somebody would say amen, like, verbally. But that's cool if you just shake your head. That's good. That's good. It's true. Brenda did? Brenda, okay. Louder next time, Brenda. So, summary. Here's where we've been. First, in the water. As Jesus hears the words of the Father and sees the Holy Spirit descending on Him, Jesus is revealed as God. And His authority is established in the water. And then as Jesus, unlike Adam, Jesus comes as the second Adam to stand up to Satan and to say no. And here's what that means for us. Where Adam fell and Satan was, was victorious, Jesus stood and, is, and Satan is defeated. I'm going to say that again because I messed it up. Where Adam fell and Satan was victorious, Jesus stood and Satan was defeated. 
And so we have a choice. Are we to be in Adam or are we to be in Christ? That's the choice. There's nothing really in between. In Adam or in Christ. We come into the world in Adam. That's the way we come. If you looked at Romans chapter 5, verse 19, you'd read this. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. That's what happened to us. Through one man's disobedience. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. In Adam or in Christ? 1 Corinthians 15. 45 and 49. You can check this out too. It says this, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Think of that. We come into this world bearing the image of the man of dust, Adam. That's all we are. We are in Adam. We are of the dust. But we can leave this world bearing the image of the man of heaven. By God's grace, through our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be adopted and made His instead of Adam. That's what Jesus came for. So first question is this. Will you trust in the One who alone can have victory over Satan. You can't do it on your own. You're not going to have victory. You can't stand up to Satan. You haven't. Think of how many times in your life you have not stood up to Satan. How many times have you fallen for temptation? We are very clearly in Adam. We need to admit we're not very good. Our only hope is that we turn and put our faith in Christ. And that in Christ we can then stand up to Satan. Because he has stood up to Satan for us. Satan waited for his opportunity. Remember, he, he said he's going to wait for an opportune time. He did come back. And he thought he got him this time. About three years later, when Jesus had nails put through his wrists and through his feet, and he was nailed to the cross, and Satan's thinking, now I got him. This time, he's mine. He's not even saying anything. He just, he just took this. He didn't even stand up. But then guess what? Three days later, with power over sin and death, to break the power of sin and to defeat Satan, Jesus rose from the dead to show His authority over Satan. And He will one day come, it says in Revelation verse, chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. That's good news. And in Romans 16.20 it says, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. We have a Jesus whom we can trust because He is God and because He has complete authority over Satan. And I hope that's an encouragement to you as you fight the battle. Because there is a real battle going on. Some of you are feeling it. Like in here, right now, you might not even be letting it out because you want to show everybody you're okay. But right now, you're not feeling very okay. And there is a real battle raging in your heart. There's a real battle raging in this church. Did you know that? 
It's spiritual. We don't see it most of the time. And we can just go through the motions just doing the church thing. But there is a real battle going on here. And there is a real battle in our community. And all over the world, there is a real battle going on. And as we fight this battle, and I hope we're fighting it, and as we fight this battle, I hope that we no longer, like Adam, believe Satan's lie about the tree and fall into temptation. Because our sin, and we've seen this, our sin and the sin of others has some ugly consequences. Here is a final encouragement to you this morning. I want you to hear this. This is a quote from somebody else. But it's so encouraging and I want you to hear this. Listen. But God didn't leave us defenseless. God said to Jesus, Listen, God said to Jesus, Obey me about the tree. Only this time, the tree was a cross. And you will die. And Jesus did. He has gone before you into the heart of a very real battle. What He has enjoyed from all eternity, He has come to offer to you. And sometimes, when you're in the deepest part of the battle, when you're tempted and you're hurt and you're weak, you'll hear in the depths of your being the same words Jesus heard. This is My beloved child. You are My beloved child whom I love and with you I am well pleased. You only hear that when you're in Christ. And so before we just jump into singing a closing song together, this is, this is some good news. And I know the battle's raging and it's real. And so we're going to do something a little different this morning. I think we need time to reflect and we need time to pray. And so Jeff's going to be playing a song. And if you'd like to sit and pray in your seat, then sit and pray in your seat. If you see somebody around you that maybe needs you to pray with them, then pray with them. If you are in the midst of the battle and you are feeling totally weak and you don't even know how to fight and you just want somebody else to pray for you, I'm going to be hanging out up here and you can come and, you, and I'll pray with you. And if there's a lot of people, then some elders will get up and you can pray with them too. And if you need to, if you realize that you are still in Adam and you are not in Christ and you need to come and you need to confess your sin, Put your trust in Jesus so that you might be in Christ and forever participate in what He has enjoyed since all of eternity. Then come and talk to me about that too. But This is a time for us to just pray and reflect and ask God to come and help us as we fight the battle. Trusting all the time that He is stronger and He does have complete authority.